Okay, here we go. We are purportedly up and operating once again, a surprise to, uh, to us especially. It is October the 14th, and look at the beautiful weather Alaska is having in October. It's uh, reflected in the huge attendance that we have again today. My goodness, it's amazing. I, I'm, I've been, we've been up here for a long time, haven't we, Cynthia? When's the last September, October we've ever seen like that? Did, have we ever seen one like that? Two or three? Why is it that I remember none of them? Okay. That explains it right there. But I'm impressed. I think it's supposed to be a record today, which means, what, 53 or 54, something like that. In case you people on the Internet want to know why we're so excited, we got 55 degrees in October. We're just ecstatic. Hardly anyone froze to death this week. Okay, October the 14th, 2018, lecture discussion number 40 on the book of Joel. Welcome to all the Facebook people. Hi, you always wave at me. I see you. <laughs> we last found ourselves in Revelation 11, 7 through 14. So let me put that on the board for everybody that's trying to keep track. Revelation 11, 7 through 14. That's where we were last week. Or a couple of weeks, or who can tell? That's the death and resurrection of the two witnesses. And it's always appropriate, one should ask, how does one arrive at Revelation 11, 7 through 14, whilst we're engaged in a study on the prophecies of Joel? Where are the two witnesses in Joel, ultimately becomes the question. And uh, whoever this one is that's asking this insightful question... It remains for the rest of us to marvel. This is an insightful question, seriously. It's not just uh, wise and uh, sagaciousness is not necessarily uh, the optical, optical word, optimal word. I finally got it out of there. But uh, nonetheless, when you're asking this question, how did we get here? You're in the right area now. Always ask, where are we now? How did we get here? Tracing the anatomy of the process is of the utmost value in the study of Scripture. Let me phrase it another way. Try to have a constant awareness when you see the repeating of circumstances in the Word of God. When you say to yourself, my, this seems familiar, go find where it was. God reprises themes to the unlearned scripture of the Bible. The people who have a shallow understanding of scripture, it seems like they're just mere reiterations. But it's not ever that. It's always a refinement, an addition, if you want to think of it that way. It is the Hebrew principle of recurrence. That is how Genesis 1 through 3 is written. It gives you information. Then it starts over again and gives you information again. Then it adds more information in. And it's constantly referring to itself as it goes along. If you think it's chronological, well, then you'll be confused. It's not. It's recurrence. Always adding more information. That is how the Bible is written. That is how the Hebrews think, even today. When you come across the pattern in Scripture that is continually resurfacing, get a clue. There's a reason. Each time and each place that you find it, they're going to be a cumulative effect. In other words, it will be, they will, they will blend together. 
The evidences are included. The very reason of this is to bring more detail to the story. Every time you see the story or every time you read the story, you find not story. That Every time you read the true literal account, you will find more evidences in it. It isn't like a teenage boy who adds more lies to his. Too much information, too many details. First clue that you're... Well, lying teenage boy is a string of redundancies right there. But in any event, one of the ways is, of course, is that they can never keep the story straight. They always add a detail that they omitted. They add details that uh, uh, don't make any, have no continuity. And that tells you that it is a lie. We've had that recently, as you know, in the news. It's very simple to figure it out. But the Bible is not that way. The Bible is written on the Hebrew principle of recurrence. And not knowing that will lead you to uh, some difficult positions. But as well as noticing the the accumulation of evidence is also focus on what has been left out this time. The omissions. The differentia. What's left out? What is different? The, the ever so slight variations in the account, and, and those are easily overlooked. We, there's a great deal of negligence with respect to the omissions in theological circles and theological studies. And if you don't notice them, boom, off into the ditch you will go. The gravitational field of the theological pit is powerful. Beware the event horizon, as I like to say. Once you pass it, you're going to be sucked in and probably stuck. So pay attention to all of these little things if you can. And always consider the omniscience of God. God, it is his word, it is his book. He inspires men to write it as he wishes. And therefore, his omniscience demands that if something is not present in a reoccurrence of a pattern, then the only logical assessment is that it is intentional. Why would he leave something out in one event and, not, uh, and repeat the event and... Omit that particular detail. There must be a reason. Again, omniscience makes that obvious. Therefore, utilizing the current subject, Revelation 11, 7 through 14. What do we notice? Now, I know some of you have not been here for a few weeks. Revelation 11, 7 through 14 is being compared to the um, resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Lazarus. Those three constitute the sign of Jonah. So the first third of the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Lazarus. The second is the resurrection of the greater, greater Jonah, Christ himself. And the third aspect or facet of the, of the sign of Jonah is uh, the resurrection of the two witnesses. So compare the two witnesses with Lazarus and Christ. What is the foremost difference besides there's two of them? Say that? They're not buried. Absolutely right. Wow. Fantastic. No burial. Some people will say no grave clothes. Here we have we have three days for Lazarus. I'm sorry, four days for Lazarus, three days for Christ, and three and a half days for the two witnesses. So we have 
different elements here. And they omniscient God did this. He knows what he's doing. Don't be shocked. You'd be surprised how many times I get people say to me, well, God really doesn't know. He made a mistake here. It should be three, three, and three. No, it should be four, three, and three and a half. Exactly as it is. It's unbelievably amazing when you find out what the four, three, and three and a half is. God does not think like us. There, that's why I get the big money right there. Wisdom like that. The two witnesses that were not buried. The burial is not part of this one. Here we have a cave and a stone and burial. Here we have a cave, stone and burial. Here we do not. Here we have grave clothes. Here we have grave clothes. Here we do not. Why no burial? It's the central foremost question, I believe, of the two witnesses. They are a sign of Jonah. There's no, there's no uh, dispute over that. I think that is so apparent that it's not worth even discussing otherwise. Why did they, were they not buried? The two witnesses lie in the street of the great city Jerusalem for three and a half days. Why do the people of the Antichrist not bury them? And some will say it's disrespect. They hated them so much that they wanted them to rot in the street. There is decomposition. We have decomposition with Lazarus. We have decomposition with the two witnesses. We do not, of course, have decomposition with Christ. Psalm 16.10, Acts 2.27. Well, why didn't they bury them? They must have reasons in the past. I propose that the two witnesses were eviscerated. They're mutilated. They were probably beheaded. They were so loathed by the world, but certainly loathed in, in Jerusalem. And you may not have known that, but I'll make that case in a minute. The hatred of, of man directed at the prophets of God had no boundaries in this case. They were testifying, and their testifying brought tremendous amount of pressure on the earth. The two witnesses proclaim impending judgments, uh, uh, accountability. Mankind hates accountability. We call that universalism in theology. And the testimony of the two witnesses it is validated by their incredible power. They are the two olive trees of Jesus Christ. They are his witnesses. They are testifying of him. They are declaring the return of Christ as who he really is. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the universe. He's the king of the world. And he is the one only creator God. That is what they say over and over and over again. And then they punctuate it with tremendous amounts of power. They have power. To, anyone who, who uh, becomes their enemy, attacks them, is immediately consumed by fire. You would think that would cut down the effort. I just imagine these guys getting together. Well, we it's not that much different than the, the captains in Elisha. Where the captains go up there, they get wiped. The third captain doesn't want to go. I can imagine the first couple of armies that go after the two witnesses get completely burnt. They're gone. Burnt. I can imagine the next group. At the third or fourth group, you'd think somebody would say, hey, at least get some asbestos. I know it's illegal. 
Let's try something. They are ridiculously powerful. Imagine the loathing that emanates from a world clinging to evil with all of its might. What would they do to those two prophets once the opportunity seemed to have availed? They would have stood out there and cut them to pieces. And I believe they did. The Antichrist at this time uh, does behead hundreds and thousands, if not millions. And I've attempted to think this through over the years of my so-called career. Somebody stopped the people of the nations of the Antichrist from burning the bodies or burying the bodies. Somebody stopped them. Because the, the mob is the mob. Someone said, don't utterly destroy the bodies. Leave them in the great city in the street of Jerusalem and let them lie there. Now, whose idea was that? Who made the call? Who had the power and the authority to let the bodies remain where they were placed? What was the point of it? I don't see an upside to it at all. Do you? Of course, we know the story. If you prefer to approach it this way, why not just bury them? Bring in an excavator, dig a 30-foot hole, throw them in, cover them up. That's not the plan. Why not? What is gained by letting them decompose in the street of the great city? And we should back the bus up a bit, lest we can, lest we uh, can't find our way where we were. Remember, we got here because of the totality of the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah, as we have discussed uh, last week and maybe before that, who can remember? Uh, lecture number 39, for those of you who want to look it up. That's a long time ago, seven days, who can remember? Anyway, the sign of Jonah, as given in the account of the book of Jonah, is extensive. It's not just the three days and three nights. It's all of the book of Jonah. So I have the crimson worm. I have the poisonous gourd. I have the fish, of course, the ship, the seas, the casting of lots. That's how you get to Joel, by the way. Oh, oh my gosh. Jonah goes to the deepest part of the ship. Gentlemen that are running the operation, they decide we have to figure out who's responsible for the ship breaking apart and killing us all. And we've decided it's going to be Jonah. But nonetheless, we're going to cast lots just to make sure. What if the lots had come out on Fred? It's Fred. Would they have thrown Fred over? They're working their way to Jonah no matter what. They know it's Jonah. Jonah even says it's me. So that is part of the sign of Jonah, the casting of lots, the fact that Jonah goes down into the deep portion of the ship, if you will. The hatred of Jonah, the anger of Jonah. Jonah has hatred for Nineveh, for the Assyrians. He is angry that they're not being killed. But then we have this incredible repentance of a nation, Assyria, the belief that comes, the withering of the, of the plant, the heat of the sun, 
The death and resurrection, I'm not going in order, of Jonah. Sackcloth and ashes, which is mourning. The nation of Nineveh goes into mourning. For what are they mourning? They say, we will no longer believe the evil. And they put sackcloth and ashes on themselves and on their animals. What are they mourning? What have they done? They've spent every waking hour in the last couple hundred years killing Jews every day. Now they're going to worship the king of the Jews. All because Jonah hates them. Not really. All because God took someone who hated them, had him vomited up dead on the beach of the river, decomposed. The book of Jonah is clear that he is dead. Three days, three nights in a fish. How's he look? Try it. In any event, God uses him and the entire city of Nineveh repents and mourns for what they have believed. Three day, and it's an exceedingly great city. That all, that's not a complete list, not even approaching a complete list of the elements of the sign of Jonah, but it's a fair start. So all of those are there. So now you carry that to the next place. From Jonah, we went directly to Lazarus, where what did we find? We found more information. Instead of three and a half days, we, or instead of three days and three nights, we have four days. The sign of Jonah is not just explained, it's demonstrated at Lazarus. And as we can see, the voice of God, this loud voice now shows up. So we have a loud voice. This was on the board last week, but I can't, I can't emphasize the loudness of that voice. You decide for yourself how many decibels that is when he screams, when God yells. How loud is loud when God is doing it? And in the calling of Lazarus' name, the fact that he is resurrected with a loud voice by name, that is a precursor to something. God is going to call you by your name. And his voice is central to the resurrection, and it was central to the resurrecting of Lazarus. And the reversing of the death state to its previous life state is what happened here at Lazarus in front of hundreds, if not thousands, of witnesses. What is the biological requirement to reverse, engineer a putrefied body to a living body? I've asked that question thousands of times. What does it take? How many cells have to be restored? How many cells do you have? They're all dead after four days. They have to be regenerated, don't they? All the organs. Just taking the dead body and turning it to a living body. What is required? And that's, again, only the physical. There's a spiritual aspect, the spiritual component. We have to find the mind, the soul, the spirit, and put that in the body. Who can do that? Nobody can do that. There's no church that can do it. There's no televangelist that can do it. No, they can't even do a fly. Lying pukes can't stand it. They have no chance they can resurrect a human being. I've made that comment thousands of times. I'll take them down to the pound here. We got euthanized animals. I love dogs, as you know. I want every single dog to live. I'll put them in front. 
They won't raise a single dog. And they know it. Bring them a dog, try it. They'll never even do a thing. They'll just look at you like, oh my, I have to go now. Please give me your money. Makes me sick. Am I mad yet? Getting there. Anyway. No one can resurrect a dead body except Jesus Christ. He says so. He says he is the resurrection. Singular. Definitive. Anyway, the sign of Jonah as displayed at the resurrection of Lazarus, is revealed to consist of more elements, recurrence. I now have a stone, a cave, burial. Before I had a fish, I have stench at Lazarus, and I'm convinced I have stench at Jonah. A professional mourning contingent is added. People who make money out of mourning the dead, as if it is permanent. It's a temporary state. Physical death is a temporary state in the Bible. The Bible is absolutely clear about that. God makes that perfectly obvious. And yet we mourn over this temporary state. Christ groans over the professional mourning. Over all of the mourning, that's God himself is groaning over the unbelief. So that element is their unbelief as opposed to belief with respect to Jonah. There's the plotting to kill Lazarus. By the religious leaders of Israel, there is the rejection of Lazarus by the nation, the religious leaders of Israel. Again, the loud voice, Christ resurrects Jonah, or I'm sorry, Lazarus with a loud voice, just as he does from the cross. As you know, the dead in the tombs resurrect, Matthew 27:52. So that's more evidence that these are the sign of Jonah, all of them. There's grave clothes, there's a face cloth. I have to put that on there. I've been battling this face cloth for a few weeks with you, haven't I? Trying desperately not to tell you how it works. Today I might, in fact, tell you something to help you figure it out. Some of you have figured it out. Women that are prominent, that are a mess in the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. So that's Mary and Martha and why they repeat the same thing. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. But all of those now are being added to uh, Jonah. And then we have the sign of Jonah as given by the creator of himself, Christ himself, by God himself, the greater Jonah. Again, the rejection of the nation is there. The face cloth is emphasized. It's, it's kind of discussed with regard to Lazarus, but it's, it is elevated to something quite significant with Christ. So that piece of information is there. Roman guards fall as dead. The angel of the Lord, that's Christ himself, removes the stone. And with Lazarus, he tells people to remove the stone. I want to know how heavy was the stone for Lazarus? How many guys does it take to roll it away? A lot of times they set that thing in with a device that drops it into place so that you can't remove it. That would be like if Christ said to me, go roll that stone away. And I'm looking at the stone and it's the size of, I don't know, a small apartment building. I'm being silly a little bit. I would probably hope that I was going to get some kind of assistance. 
Did Christ participate in the rolling of the stone away from Lazarus is my question. He clearly does it for himself. He is sitting on his stone. The angel of the Lord Jesus Christ removes the stone from his cave that he is in. How big a stone did the Romans put in there? They guarded it. Stone's gone and the guards are dead. There's three days and three nights. As opposed to four and three and a half. We have the aspect of Adam put in here with the gardener. There's no recognition of Christ by Mary Magdalene. And then the burial spices, uh, of course, are in both. And they make no sense seemingly because of Psalm 16.10. The body does not decompose with Christ. But nonetheless, he, he went with the burial spices Nonetheless, why is he doing that? Again, that's far from a complete list of all the uh, evidences of the sign of Jonah that are given to us in the New Testament. And so hopefully you're all reasonably in the same place now. And most of you are on the bus, though I am aware that more than a few are riding on the roof, hanging on to the bike rack. I, I got all of that, but we'll do the best we can. So now we're going to get to this third sign of Jonah. And it's amazing. As you can expect. But always remember, what do you do when you think you have the third sign of Jonah figured out? What must you do now? That's right. You have to go back and connect it to the crucifixion, burial, resurrection of Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of Lazarus. So here we are. Let's read this again because all of this is to just get you caught up. Now, after three and a half days, oh my... The breath of life from God entered them. So we have, I'll start at verse 7. Hot one. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. These are the two witnesses, and the beast comes to kill them. Overcome them and kill them. How did he do that? I've asked that question all throughout my 20-some-odd years, 25 almost. And their dead bodies, how do you kill these guys? They manage to pull it off. How do they do it? And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Is that good news? No. Where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. As there it is. Can't be, can't bury them. Why not? Who made the decision? Who said no? And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because the two prophets Tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God. Who is the breath of life? He says he is. This is Christ. He is the breath of life. Entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice. Here we go again. From heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. That's the pillar of cloud. And their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. Seven thousand people were killed. 
Why not six nine ninety nine? Why not seven one hundred and twelve? Probably just a, an, uh, an approximation here. God doesn't like to be specific with his numerology. He's not interested in math at all. So why 7,000 is probably just an insignificant detail. You just pass right over it. A tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. Another earthquake. Did we have an earthquake at the... Uh, Yes, we did. Crucifixion of Christ. See, that's part of the sign of Jonah, isn't it? All of these pieces. He just keeps putting it all together for us. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Woe, woe, woe. Your boat. I've tried that joke 20 times. It's never worked. So we're going to keep trying it and keep trying it. We're going to beat that joke into submission. Are you one or the other? You have to admit, it does help you remember there's three woes. <coughs> okay. <coughs> and you might remember... What we just read from last week, that's about where we ended. Immediately, it should register that the resurrection of the two witnesses, the resurrections of the two witnesses, concludes the second of the three woes, which is Revelation 8.13. Woe, woe, woe. Your vote. So know that. It's very important that you know that. Admittedly, it's difficult to keep all of this in its place, much less in its proper chronology. Which is why we here at beautiful downtown Cliffenstein in Seiden hand out copies regularly of Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum's book. If you don't have one, let me know. I'm trying to be the number one source of Mr. Fruchtenbaum. His book is called The Footsteps of the Messiah, for those of you on the Internet. There's a disclaimer here. There's no book ever written apart from the Bible, apart from the Holy Spirit that's accurate. There is no book. There's always mistakes in them. Dr. Fruchtenbaum has put mistakes in his book, whether he knows it or not. I found every one of them. I'm kidding about that. Kind of. (laughs) Anyway, with all that said, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's scholarship, in my opinion, is the standard for Revelation commentary. I don't think there's anything that's close. Granted, he added himself to those who were before him, Clarence Larkin being one such man. But we know Daniel, we're going to understand Daniel 12.9, and 12.9 tells us we're going to understand the book of Daniel at the end of the age of the Gentiles. And if we're going to understand the book of Daniel, then we're going to understand the book of Revelation. If we're going to understand the book of Revelation, we're going to understand the book of Joel and Zechariah. We, if we are the last generation, will have the understanding of these books that no one for centuries and centuries and centuries ever understood. And I think we do understand them. The wise shall understand. Daniel 12, 9. The point being, yea, a point. Keeping everything sorted in the book of the revealing of the true identity of Jesus Christ is a tremendous challenge. The first woe, I hope you remember, was primarily the 150-day suspension of all death. Nothing died for 150 days. That's 
a prophecy that there will be no death. God will reach down and stop all death for 150 days. That's primarily the first woe. That corresponds to the 150 days of prevailing water during the Noahic flood of Genesis 7.24. Let me repeat this. You find something in the New Testament, you will find it in the Old Testament. So that's how you do this. I've deliberately not done that yet. Today I'll do it for you. Also within the first woe is the releasing of the demonic hordes from the bottomless pit. Abaddon, the angel of the abyss, and his forces are allowed out. The second woe is the subsequent loosing of the four angels who were bound beneath the great river of Euphrates. And I submit, and I said so at the time when we went through this, that that is the pre-flood Euphrates, not the post-flood Euphrates. So the four angels command another segment of Satan's forces. So I have the Abaddon forces, and I have the four angels forces. And they are released in the second woe. And these evil beings uh, combined uh, torment and but also kill a third of all humanity. And hopefully you kind of sort of remember some of this. And what's new to the old discussion is the other aspect of the second woe, which we just introduced. And that is these two witnesses. And so thus the most obvious of the obvious questions. How is the testimony of the two witnesses included in the sign of Jonah? Because it is. They have a sign of Jonah resurrection, that's obvious. But it's also conjoined to the war between mankind and the four angels of the Euphrates and Abaddon. That's also the sign of Jonah. Somehow. The second woe ends with the third sign of Jonah. Then comes the third woe. The third woe is the seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet discharges the seven bowls. Everybody zones out. Four people fell asleep right during that sentence. Let me repeat it. The third woe is the seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet discharges the seven bowls. In other words, the seventh trumpet holds all seven of the bowls. And that is the third woe, which is the third of the three woes. I have three woes combining into a singular, big, huge woe, if you want to think of it that way. And in other words, the three pieces of a whole. Everyone got that? Good. I know. Piece of a piece of pie, easy as cake. It's not simple. I know it's not simple. It's not supposed to be simple. Newsflash. The perfect literal word of God is not going to be simple. Yet it is going to be simple. Does that make sense? It's layered. It's infinite. We should expect it. If it's not, then it's not God. The mind of creator God inspired his prophets and apostles, his disciples, to write his perfect. He calls it his perfect. His word. Anyway, I realize that dealing with the book of Revelation is analogous to being beaten like a redheaded mule. Some of you would think rented stepchild. I got all of that. Listen, it's tough. It just is what it is. And I can't make it easy. I can't. And I don't like to make it easy either because then I'm doing it a disservice. And so that is how it is. Okay. 7,000 are killed. A tenth of the city fell. And we, and by we, I mean me, asked last week, who are these seven dead thousand? 7,000 dead. Who are they? 
What are their names? What do they do? Notice that the 7,000 dead die simultaneously with the loud voice come up here. Did I have anybody that fell as dead in the resurrection of Christ? I did. Who were they? Romans, yeah. Now I have 7,000 fell as dead. As dead means what? Dead. So, who are these guys? When Christ says, come up here, to the two witnesses, they rise up, but 7,000 die, fell as dead. And that uh, come up here is word for word, Revelation 4.1. The Apostle John also is told to come up here in a loud voice. Now, he's not a resurrection. But the Apostle Paul now has to be associated with the two witnesses, which means somehow he adds information to the sign of Jonah. We can anticipate the loud voice has done this for a reason. Christ is the loud voice, can't we? He has a reason, duh. So we've got to explain the purpose of the sign of Jonah at Revelation 11.11. Come up here, the breath of God, come up here. And quite a few of you, and by quite a few, I mean one. One of you came up, and he's not here this week, came up to the most holy Lexan podium right here and um, in the post game last week and offered the Korah Rebellion, which is number 16. Let me put that on the board for the sake of the Internet audience. who are We are live streaming, aren't we? Oh, my goodness. So both of you who are watching this, um, need to know that number 16 was brought up at the end of last week saying, hey, wait a minute, has this got anything to do with number 16, the Korah rebellion? There we had two, Moses and Aaron, threatened by the wicked men of Korah. God calls them wicked. Why are they wicked? But he, he called, they seem like just nice guys. Just don't think Moses and Aaron are doing a good job. So, hey, let's have a vote. Let's vote for me for Moses. I'll be Moses. Moses, you kind of run along. That's their plan. I'm saying it in kind of a <sighs> diminished fashion, but nonetheless, that pretty much sums it up. That's uh, number 1626. Kor and his men are Levites. They are in the priesthood. They are separated ones. Again, the priesthood. They reject Moses and Aaron. They sought to kill Moses and Aaron. That's the plan. Replace them. And God split apart the ground, and all 250 of these men with Korah went down into the pit alive. And a fire came out of the Shekinah glory, which again is, is Christ God himself. And all the men perished, and all of their belongings were also consumed. That's what happened at Korah. Earthquake, if you wish, sucked down, fire comes down on top of them. Do I have fire at the two witnesses? I do. Try to kill them. What happens to you? Exactly very similar to what happened at the Korah Rebellion. Consumed by fire. These men, the Bible specifically says in number 16, did not die naturally. That's a key point. 
To repeat, God declares them wicked. So how then are they wicked? In any event, they die before the nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel sees this attempt to kill Moses and Aaron. And what happens to the ones that attempt that? Not good. And the Israelites who stood in proximity to these men as they were brought out, uh, they had incense. It's a, a, a story of great depth. They were told to hold incense as an offering to God, and would God accept their offering? God did not accept their offering. But the people who were around, uh, who were, like I said, in, adjacent to those men, as the men of Korah cried out as they were sucked into the abyss, and as the fire comes down, the men of Korah cry out. The people who heard and saw that, who were essentially eyewitnesses, they panic. And they fled in great fear. And I should point out Numbers 26.11, Numbers 27.3. Get this question every time. I do anything about the core rebellion. The children and the wives were brought out also, and they were there. And people assume that the children and the wives were killed. They were not killed, 26, 11, 27, 3 of Numbers. Only the 250 men that God declared to be wicked and their rejected offerings of incense were killed. As is often the case, the solution to Numbers 16, that event true event actually happened is to begin at the motives of the rebels. What are they thinking? Why do I bring this up in the context of the two witnesses and the sign of Jonah? What are these guys thinking? They've got Moses. They've got Aaron. They saw the Red Sea. They saw all the Egyptians take a bath. Famous song by Larry. Gosh. Moses in the wilderness. Can't remember his name. All the Egyptians took a bath. Larry Norman, yes. Never borrow money needlessly. Who remembers household finance? Raise your hand if you're older than me. Thank you, Marie. (laughs) Anyway, how do I do this? They saw all of that, the pillar of cloud, the extraordinary evidence of, uh, of the majesty and the direct presence of the creator, God himself. It couldn't be more evident that the Lord God Almighty had picked Moses, for goodness sakes. And they say, no, we don't want Moses. We want us. Give us our little incense. We'll go up and see what God thinks. It is obvious that God had placed Moses and Aaron into their positions as prophet and high priest, yet nonetheless Korah attacks and convinces 250 people, men, to help him attack Moses and Aaron. Remember, if you read the story, Moses is distraught. He knows that these men are going to be killed. He also knows that these men are trying to kill him. That's something amazing about Moses and David both. They love people that are trying to kill them. I have yet to accomplish that. Probably won't. Do not have that kind of nature. They're extraordinary. And they're they're singled out in Scripture because of this kind of humility, both of them. A heart like unto God's, he says of David. David is he killed a uh, he killed a man. Uh, he stole his he stole a 
14, 15 year old girl raped her. I mean, he was brutal. But God said he had a heart like mine because he loved the men and women who hated him. Specifically Absalom. That, that is David. And it's the same for Moses, the most humble of all men. But yet Korah attacks and he thinks that God is going to choose Korah. What's the, what are they doing? Why are they attempting this? They saw all the miracles. Why would God remove Moses and Aaron and install Korah? What makes him think that's going to happen? And obviously Korah expected to have success. You don't do this unless you think there's some viability to your plan. So start to think about how he's going to do this. Therefore, Moses and Aaron, as I said, have to be killed at standard protocol. You don't replace Moses and Aaron let them live. You can't. Got to kill them. And they're not killable. Uh-oh. That is why the gentleman who's not here, who will be remain nameless, but I'll tell you his initials, Brady. Um, that's why he brought up the Korah Rebellion, because he immediately saw all those little connectivities. Naturally, being weird before I came to Cliffside, Cliffside has not made me weird. That's been documented over and over again. I spent a great deal of time attempting to reconcile this information of number 16. Who are the 250? I want to know who they are. See the same thing? I want to know who the 7,000 are. Who's the 7,000? Are they idiots? They're not. So what's their plan? How well known are they? Who knew them? Obviously, how does, how does this fit in the Bible? Again, I have this information. Where else is there information like this where I have probably powerful Beings and a powerful being attempting to supplant two that God has chosen. Where is all of this? And, and hopefully you see the, the, the fact that God rejected the offering of these men. That's similar to Cain, isn't it, in Genesis 4? The descriptions of Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, as they apply to the satanic rebellion... What was the plan? I see all of these fit together. And as I've said, I've spent a lot of time trying to put it all together and have not yet completely succeeded. But I've got a long way. Maybe I'll go back to it before uh, long. It's a lot of fun, as I define fun. Keep that in mind, relative term. But we're wrestling now with Revelation 11, 17, 14, 11, 7 through 14. But I brought it up because I believe that it is... Uh, it is applicable. Instead of 250 swallowed up in a moment and also in, a, in an opening of the earth, there's now 7,000 dead. The questions have semblance. Who are the 7,000 that are killed? God resurrects with his loud voice, but at the same time an earthquake comes and there's 7,000 dead. 7,000 fatalities. What's the first obvious question? Are they random? Do you think they're random? They're not random. They're specific. So who's the 7,000? Did the 7,000 know each other? Did they all do the same job? The 250 Levites at number 16 certainly knew one another. How much power did the 7,000 that died have? 
Were they governmental? Were they religious? When they died, did all of Jerusalem know they died? And then did all of Jerusalem know why they died? Obviously, to solve this, we have to read 1 Kings 19. So let's go do that really fast. Don't despair. Terry lifted up her one remaining finger and told me how much time I have left. I think this is absolutely amazing. Hopefully you will too. 1 Kings 19, 11 through 18. Then he said, this is God talking to Elijah. God's revelation to Elijah is the little heading that I have. Not uh, necessarily accurate, but not necessarily um, not applicable. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. There's a behold. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. In other words, I have rocks breaking in pieces. And the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a small, still voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. I have a face cloth and a cave. How interesting. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken. Whatever you find in the New Testament, you find yourself a face cloth in a cave. You're going to find a face cloth in a cave in the Old Testament. And there you go. Now it's solved. Bang. Over. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. He's saying, I'm the only one left. There's nobody that believes in God except me. I'm it. How many people has he seen killed? They believed in God. He thinks he's the only one left. And they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And then you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel-Meholah. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. Whatever you find in the New Testament, you will go find it in the Old Testament and it will fix it for you. I have yet reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed, I'm sorry, not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Isn't that amazing? Let's put kissed on the board really fast. Hmm, is right. First and foremost, here's Elijah in a cave with a face cloth. As I said, we could stop right there. Lecture over. 
Because that is extraordinary. That helps you understand the face cloth of Christ and of Lazarus and therefore helps you understand the sign of Jonah. Now you've got that piece of information and off you go. And I recognize because I am a religious professional, I know what happens. Most of you seized it, didn't, didn't even see that or hear You went right to earth, wind, and fire. I got it. I taught high school. It just always happens. But set aside earth, wind, and fire. Even though that's incredible. The rock and R&B soul band, not so much. They had a brass section, I'll give them that. Trumpet players, yay. God's earth, wind, and fire cannot be compared to a 70s music group. I give them credit. I hope they chose it on purpose. Probably didn't. Cool if they did. Anyway, the 7,000 7, whose knees have not bowed to Baal, nor kissed him. Who kisses people in the Bible? Judas. New Testament, Old Testament. So are they 7,000 priests that died in Jerusalem? Are these 7,000 that kissed and bowed to Baal, which would be the Antichrist? So are these priests of the Antichrist, all 7,000? They are. God kills them with his voice. The two witnesses have been killed. The entire earth is rejoicing. Gifts are exchanged. There's celebration. And Jerusalem is characterized as Sodom and Egypt. How big a mess are they in? They're in a big mess. That's not how you describe saved people, Sodom and Egypt. 7,000 priests now of Baal, if you will, that have bowed to the Antichrist and kissed the Antichrist. God slays, slays them. It makes you think about Samson. How did he kill them? I don't think he killed them by collapsing buildings on top of them. But if he could have, certainly makes you consider that. Or did he kill them as he will in Revelation 19.21 with the voice, with his word? Out of his mouth, the two-edged sword. Is that how he killed him? Because that he liquefies the people that he does that to. So what are these 7,000 priests doing? What was going on in Sodom? I'm obviously proposing a correlation between the dead 7,000 and the rest because it says, let me go back there, it says the rest were greatly afraid. But what did they do? What did the rest do? Let me repeat that really fast. It's critical, I believe. And a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. Seven thousand people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Who is the rest? It's obviously not the seven thousand. The rest didn't die. Who's the rest? The rest were afraid. They gave glory to God. This is a reference back to Joshua 7:19 and Achan. As Achan is about to be executed, he gives glory to God. He's a saved man. These are saved people. Were they saved before those 7,000 are dead and those two witnesses are raised up? Probably not, but they're saved now. They're the rest. How many are they? 
I'm obviously proposing again this relationship between the dead 7,000 and the rest to the city of Nineveh. An entire nation saw and heard the resurrection of the two witnesses. The entire world saw it and heard it. So the question becomes, who knew about the deaths of the 7,000? Next week, we'll finish up those questions.